It is a majestic mountain that towers over the terrain of the rest of the book. Isaiah chapter 6, in just 13 verses, shows us a supernatural insight and an interaction that causes us to say, God, have mercy on me. The setting is one of grief. The setting is one that we are introduced to supernatural beings who cannot even look at the majesty and the holiness that we have just sung about. I want to invite you to find a copy of the scriptures if there's one by you to, and if you need the Pew Bible, it's on 590. This message is entitled, Holiness Observed, Grace Undeserved, and it comes from Isaiah chapter 6. This is a series entitled, The Gospel of Isaiah, and why do we call it <clears throat> The Gospel of Isaiah? Simply for this reason. There are more Isaiah references in the New Testament than any other Old Testament book. And in the Gospels, there are massive prophecies that talk about Jesus, our Savior and Lord. The book of Isaiah starts, the very first verse in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 1, 1, says, the vision of Isaiah. And Isaiah, in this passage of Scripture that we're going to look at, will receive his call into ministry. And in just 13 verses we see all the four major themes that are in the book of Isaiah. We see holiness. We see the judgment of God. We see the mercy and grace, or the atonement, hint. Look at verse 7. And finally, if this word wasn't in here, this would be a hopeless chapter. We find the Redeemer tagged as the scene, as the seed. In this passage, we see a king who is contrasted and the setting for this message is one of grief. We're introduced to Isaiah chapter 6 about a king who passed away. The king that we're talking about is Uzziah. Jewish tradition tells us that this king that's just referred to is related to Isaiah. Their dads were brothers, which would make them first cousins. But even so, what's more important is that Uzziah the one that you read about had a 52-year reign of wealth and power and glory. Under Uzziah, the children of Israel had come back to their glory days, the good old days, if you will. It was a reminder of David and Solomon's rule of power. But all that changed. If you have a Bible, you can just keep your finger in Isaiah chapter 6 and then flip over to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. It's on page 391. And we read about Uzziah's life. And Uzziah's life can be split in half. And chapter 26 of Second Chronicles does a good job on that. Uzziah grew in favor with God. And he became very, very powerful. But then he became strong. Look what it says, Second Chronicles chapter 26. His fame spread far and wide, for he, Uzziah, was greatly helped until he became powerful. What does that mean, he became powerful? Well, the next verse tells us what it meant. Second Chronicles chapter 26, verse 16. Did you find it there? This is the key. But after Uzziah became powerful, his what? His pride led to his death. And so it would be proper to say this, as one commentator said. In the year, a great and powerful king who had a tragic end died. I saw the Lord. 
That's the context of what you're going to read. It was the end of an era. It was the end of an era. And maybe you feel, especially in the world that we live in, with such political divide, with so many people on edge in this post-COVID world, like things have changed. Will they ever go back? You may be incredibly discouraged. Then this passage of scripture is for you and me. When Isaiah saw the Lord, reading in Jesus' name. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was high and exalted. He was seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. John chapter 12, verse 41 says this, And Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord. This is what he saw. Then one of the seraphims flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth, and he said, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Circle that word. Circle that word. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I. Send me. He said, go. And tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts and turned and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will be laid waste or burned. But as the terabith and oak leave stumps where they are cut down, So the holy seed will be a stump in the land. God's word is alive, and it speaks to us today. God grant us ears. Holiness that stands alone. Even the angels were stretched with their language of trying to describe his holiness. Holy, 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 three times isn't like one plus one plus one equals three. This is the only time in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible that an adjective or a superlative is used three times. The reason why that's important is because it's used as a multiplier. Holy, even more sacred, even more than you can ever imagine. 
he stands all alone. The devotional writer A.W. Tozer, some of you may be familiar with him, wrote in the Knowledge of the Holy, chapter 13, this very helpful understanding of his holiness and how he stands all by himself. There is no one else like him. Tozer writes, We must not compare the being of God with any other as we just now compared the mountain with the child. We must not think of God as highest in an ascending order of beings, starting with a single cell and going up from a fish to a bird to an animal to a man to an angel to a cherub to God. This would be to grant God eminence, even preeminence, but that's not enough. We must grant him transcendence in the fullest meaning of the word. Forever God stands apart in light unapproachable. He is as high above an archangel as above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is but finite, while the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. The caterpillar and the archangel, though removed from each other in the scale of created things, are nevertheless one in that they are alike created. They both belong in the category of that which is not God and are separated from God by infinity, infi infinity itself. Perfect, supernatural, heavenly beings cannot even look at him. They cannot peer into the king. They cannot, on their own accord, walk in any direction. They look to him. A million angels fall on the floor echoing his name, holy, holy, holy. Here, we don't get a number, but John, in his revelation, in John 5.11, talks about thousands upon thousands or myriads upon myriads of angels that worship him, that worship him. Holiness is marked by fire. It's acquainted. It's associated with fire. Fire is the name of seraphs. That literally means burning servants. And look at all the fire references. Do you have your Bibles there? Just note these fire references. The ones who praise him are burning servants. That's what that name means. And then in verse 4, the temple was filled with smoke. Smoke is identified with God's holiness. We see that in Genesis chapter 15, 17, this beautiful passage of scripture of the Abrahamic covenant where God passed between two pieces and they were filled with smoke, his presence. Exodus chapter 19, 18, right before we get the Ten Commandments, God came down in smoke before on Mount Sinai. You see the holiness of God in the fire with the live coal. That was burning hot. You see the live coal that touched and cauterized his mouth two times. He burned his mouth and purified his mouth. And then finally you see this fire that was burned and laid waste. The ESV translation says in verse 13, it will be laid again and laid waste. ESV says the word burned. Later in the book of Isaiah, we hear about this from Isaiah 33, verse 14. The sinners in Zion are terrified. The tremble, trembling grips the godless. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting
burning. No one can. So when you stand in the presence of a holy God, this one who has this multiplying effect that we can't even get our heads around, that the holy ones of God, supernatural beings who are perfect, can't even look at him, can't even be in his, can't even have to cover their feet. His response is, what I hope my response would be and your response would be is, woe is me. Verse 5, he says, I'm undone. He's unclean. He has seen God. He's unclean morally. His humility in the depths of his being, he is unclean. He identifies with his fellow women and men. I'm a people of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. That was developed in chapters 1 through 5. Note that his comparison is not with others, but within the holiness of God. In the depths of his being, he recognizes and he identifies with his fellow women and men of his tribe. Note this, it cannot be stated strong enough. His comparison is not with others, but with the holiness of God. He felt sin as, he would feel, as we would feel sin if we were not so blurred or our senses were not so dull. And so what do you do with that? You confess. You repent. You feel the weight of our sinfulness, the sinfulness of sin. What did God do? That's why I had you circle that word, atone. The word is kafar. And atonement always comes with the idea of paying a penalty. The bill has to be paid. And grace is then applied. He cauterizes and scars his mouth. When I was in Bible college, one of my teachers gave us something, and she said, don't think it's just a Catholic thing. She said, but notice our Catholic friends, after they receive communion, will go like this. We're people of the cross. Christ has paid the penalty. Christ has paid the penalty for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 identifies just 10 groups of people. It's not exhaustive, but listen to the list. Not only just listen to the list, but notice what he said, and such were some of you. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor those who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. What would be you? will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. That's what some of you were such as, what I was. But then Paul says, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. God always works with people. Those who confess in this place of weakness and brokenness those are the people that God uses. Beautiful story in John chapter 4. Jesus meets with a woman who is a five-time divorcee. Five times. And her current lover she is not married to in John chapter 4. And as Jesus ministers to her and has conversation with her and cares for her and brings the word of life, she goes back into her hometown and she becomes the evangelist who to thunk. 
And here's what she said. She said in John chapter 4, verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Wow. So when the Samaritans came to him and they urged him to stay with them, he stayed two days, and because of his words, many more became believers. And two days later, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Wow. His response, Isaiah's response, is only two words in the actual Hebrew, modesty and humility. He says, here am I, send me. Those are only two words, and one author said, it's almost like he said, will I do? Because he confessed and his sins were paid for. God will use him. And the second half of this verse, the second half of this passage of Scripture, the first part is holiness observed identifies one's sinfulness. When we see who God is like, we see our own sinfulness. But then oftentimes we get a little bit embarrassed or it's very awkward when we get to 6, 9 through 13. These are the marks of Isaiah's ministry. For approximately 50 years, his ministry was one that no one would listen. Did you notice the totalitarian, the totalitarian, I can't say that word this morning, but the bigness of his rejection? How's that? Totality. There it is. In verse 10, listen to the words that he uses. Heart, ears, eyes, and then it goes back to eyes, ears, heart. Here is the message. Isaiah, for 50 years, you're going to preach and no one's going to listen. For 50 years, what an assignment. For 50 years, you are going to preach, no one or very few people will listen and you will repeat this again and again and again. All four Gospels quote verses 9 through 13 in, in full or in part. Write this down. If you've got a pen, you can look it up later. Matthew 13 quotes this. Mark 4 quotes this. Luke 8 quotes this. And John 12. And Acts 28. The very last chapter of the church being formed. I'll, I'll say those again. I know I said those really quick. I'm sorry. Matthew 13, Mark 4, Luke 8, John 12, and Acts 28. Jesus would often say in Matthew and in Mark, he would use these words. Have you heard this phrase before from our King and our Lord? He who has ears, let him hear. He who has ears, let him hear. The book of Revelation at the end of the prophetic apocalyptic literature after the seven churches, the Spirit of God says, he who has an ear, let him hear. Grace is undeserved, and it's commonly rejected. When our sin is exposed, when our selfishness is identified, when our lust is brought to light, when pride is revealed, when anger has burned through excuses, when gossip has poisoned our friendships, confession is the only option. It is a place of weakness 
And most of us don't want to go there. This passage of, sin, of, of Scripture lets us feel the sinfulness of our sin and we are to grieve over that and weep over how it has wounded the Holy One of Heaven. To be open to faith is a gift. God does all the verbs. He moves towards us in the person of Christ and many, many will reject it. This is what Lutheran theologian H.C. Leupold spoke of. He called it a theological dilemma. The chosen nation of God rejects the one who chose them. The unresponsive hearer finds the message only, only one, the, the unresponsive hearer finds the message despicable. And it only hardens their hearts. But God's gracious invitation is a resolve to hear it again and again. This passage of scripture would be hopeless. It would be like, well, where do you go with this unless we got to verse 13, the very last part of verse 13. Did you see that? Don't miss it. The key word is the holy seed will be the stump in the land. That's a reference. That's a reference to our king, to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's two takeaways and then four applications I want to give you. Two takeaways from this. One, even Jesus' ministry was touched by this passage of Scripture. I reference John chapter 12, verses 39 through 41. The message translation takes verse 32 this way. There were many people, a considerable number of people from the ranks of the leaders who did believe Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they didn't come out in the open with it. They were afraid of getting kicked out of the meeting place. And when push came to shove, they cared more for human approval than for God's glory. Wow. Who were some of those people who heard Jesus' ministry and became believers? A couple of them that we know about are Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who took our Redeemer's burial seriously, and they ran point. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch were had an encounter in Acts chapter 8. God is moving behind the scenes that we don't see. Take courage in that. The second takeaway from this passage of Scripture, we hear this passage of Scripture from this, this mountain peak that I called it. Anytime you hear the word, ask the Holy Spirit how it applies to you. Not the person in the row ahead of you or the one next to you. But I hope that you would have this posture. God, give me ears to hear what you want me to see here. Eyes to see what you want me to see in a heart that is changed by you, you. Ears to hear. Eyes to see. A heart that is teachable. So here are some practical steps. This came as a devotional this week from Paul David Tripp. He sends out a Wednesday devotional and I thought, man, this is so good. This is so good and applies so well to us. When was the last time you were surprised when someone confronted you about sin, criticized your character, exposed a flaw that you genuinely didn't realize existed? How did you react in the moment? These are printed in your bulletin insert. You can take them and wrestle with the Lord. Number two, are you currently on the fence about something that might be sinful? Or are you reducing the significance of the potential future sin 
to ease your conscience? Why might the sin not look as dangerous to you as it should? What is so pleasurable about what's on the other side that makes it worth sinning? Wow. How are you currently trying to self-atone for a recent sin? Who or what is getting the blame for your wrongdoing? Why is it so hard to accept that you have fallen short, sinned against others, and sinned against the Lord? These are powerful questions. Number four, in what ways are you evaluating your moral standing and lifestyle and giving it a rating of okay? In other words, why do you think you're not in need of spiritual help? Be specific. Do you compare yourself to others who are obviously much worse sinners than you to make yourself feel better? We come to the communion table. Who are, we who are sinners in thought, word, and deed, we have this recognition that no one deserves this meal. This is God's atoning work for us in the person of Christ. This is where we have our sins forgiven. We come in a posture of helplessness. We come in a posture of need. We come in a posture of brokenness. We come in a posture of humility. So I'd ask you now, hearing this message from Isaiah chapter 6, to confess your sins, to admit what the Father knows already is true of you and me, that we desperately need him to wash us clean, to stand in his holy presence. Who can do that? No one can, but by the blood of Christ. So confess your sins, friend. I invite you to bow your head and close your eyes and do that now. First John 1 John 1.9 says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What beautiful good news.